0: Welcome back to another edition of Friends of the Vine Wine Podcast.
1: This episode features a winemaker from New York City. He also began in California. His name is Abe. He is a mutual friend through Christina Rasmussen, who was in one of our earlier episodes, and she was actually the one that recommended I chat with him. I think for a lot of people, he doesn't need any introduction. But for those of you who don't know him, there is also a really great article written by Christina that I will reference in the podcast links. You can check it out as well. She had a great conversation with him. We go into the technical side of winemaking and we also go into the philosophy behind winemaking, behind being a minimal intervention or low intervention style of winemaking. Especially as someone who wasn't overly familiar with natural wines. I wanted to go to someone who was a winemaker who specialized in natural wines and really knew a lot of the nuances behind conventional winemaking and natural winemaking. So that's most of our conversation is related to that topic. We sat down not that long ago and had a great conversation. He was formerly a philosophy professor So he is well versed in educating. And that's what he did with me on this episode. Let's get right into it.
0: I know a lot of my listeners, they, they know what they like about wine. And they know they they know what they like about the different grapes that they like. And they they're getting into the into understanding wine and understanding the the different processes that go behind making wine. But they're not quite sure between natural winemaking and more conventional winemaking. I was kind of wondering if you could just kind of take us through that process and what the differences are and and how you make wine. Absolutely. I'm going to start by
2: drawing a distinction between the two kinds of winemaking before I say that much about what I do. And that's because I am a winemaker, but I think all the time about education. I feel like it's an important part of what I do, not just to make the wines, but to be able to think about all kinds of considerations surrounding the winemaking and to be able to discuss those considerations. So I'm really happy to go into the differences between the two kinds Mm. of winemaking. And first of all, my guess is that any of your listeners who have any knowledge of natural wine at all, any knowledge or interest in natural wine, will also know that it's a term that doesn't have a really precise or clear definition behind it. And I think one of the reasons for that is because the term didn't originate with a set of practices that were shared in any kind of clear way by a bunch of winemakers. It arose more in opposition to a kind of winemaking that was really common and that had no name. It was just like normal accepted winemaking. And I think that the first time that people started drawing those distinctions, maybe in the 1990s, maybe in the 2000s, I became aware of it in the very late 90s, like maybe around 99, just as I was beginning to learn about winemaking. And then the distinction wasn't between natural and something else. It was more like old school and new school. And on the side opposite natural winemaking, the, the kind of winemaking that was just like plain winemaking, now that's kind of distinguished. I think you use the word conventional, and that's a, that's a not polemical way to draw the distinction, but very often the distinction is made polemically as if there's a battle between two kinds of winemaking, and then the opposition is between something like natural winemaking on the one hand and industrial winemaking on the other. And because there's no really clear definition of either, it's a little hard to say what precisely distinguishes them. You could say to some degree that what distinguishes them are aims rather than methods. You could also say that what distinguishes them are results. The results of natural winemaking very often, but not always, taste differently from the results of conventional winemaking. But for me, the one precise thing that I think you can always lay hold of is a difference in the microbiology of the two wines. And the microbiologies of the two kinds of wines have different origins. And so I'll say something about that. In the winemaking that just swept all over the world after World War II and became nearly universal, especially in wines that were more common as opposed to really small production wines that never left the places where they were made, in the kinds of wines that were more common and more easily available, the microbiology of the wine always started with a commercial yeast, commercial yeast that would be used by the winemaker to convert the sugar and the grapes into the alcohol in the final wine. And that commercial yeast would originate in a laboratory, for the most part somewhere in Northern Europe. For interesting cultural and historical reasons, the big breeders of commercial yeast are in Denmark and Holland. And so these yeast originate in laboratories in Northern Europe, and they're then shipped around the world in these small half kilo packages that are actually really beautiful. They're small vacuum sealed bricks that are sealed up in mylar. And the packages are really fun to open because you pierce one with your jackknife. And because it's vacuum packed, there's a sudden whoosh as the air rushes in from the atmosphere around it. And then in order to make use of this yeast, you have to rehydrate it really carefully. And then you add it to the grapes or to the juice in order to begin the fermentation. And the result is a fermentation that in almost every case, and I'll draw a distinction later, in almost every case is dominated by a single species of yeast and a single variety. And the way to think about it is something like breeding dogs. It would be like knowing that there's a world of dogs and that dogs are related to foxes and to wolves. And you say to yourself, for sure, the only thing I want in my home is a dog, not a fox or a wolf. And then on top of that, I want a cocker spaniel. And then on top of that, I want the kind of cocker spaniel that's been bred for certain kinds of characteristics in England. And it's really very much the same thing with yeast. So on conventional winemaking, you have these yeasts that are really highly specialized and kind of predictable.
0: Mm.
2: And on the other hand, in natural winemaking, you don't buy any yeast at all you rely on the fermentation to start spontaneously. And there, the yeast that will convert the sugar into wine are not just one species of yeast, but at least a half dozen species of yeast, and maybe even more of that, more than that. And the one that's going to really get the job done, that's going to finish eating all the sugar and make sure that the wine is dry and that is, say, somewhere between 12 and 14 or 15 percent alcohol, that yeast is going to be one species of yeast. It'll be kind of like the dog as opposed to the foxes and the wolves. But it will probably be as many as 20 different varieties of that species of yeast. So if you think about your fermentation is a kind of population. In conventional winemaking, the population is entirely homogenous. There are literally billions, maybe even trillions of yeast cells in your fermentation, and they're genetically identical to each other. Each one is exactly like the neighbor. They succeed each other in different generations. There's a little bit of mutation that takes place from generation to generation so by the end of the fermentation there'll be a tiny degree of difference between the members of the population but super super tiny whereas in the uninoculated spontaneous fermentation it'll be like a city with a really interesting history that goes back hundreds of generations and that has allowed immigration to take place at every turn So I'm sorry for such a long answer, Ian. I think about this all the time, and there's much more I could say, but that for me is truly the chief difference between what you could call natural wine on the one hand and conventional wine on the other hand. One of them has this kind of wild microbiology that you manage to a very slight degree, and the other one has what you might call a totally programmed
0: microbiology that you manage to a really high degree and i guess the 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 next question would be that things such as um things such as how they how it's pressed and how it's racked things like that i guess it it really depends on your style of winemaking
2: i mean i think a lot about the culture of winemaking, not just about the technique and there are a lot of cultural differences that go with this really big difference like once Once you know what side of the microbiological divide you're on, like whether you want to buy um, commercial yeast or whether you want to have spontaneous fermentations, there are a whole bunch of other decisions that you make that kind of fall in line, but they're not part of a rule book or anything like that. It's more just like, oh, like people who skateboard tend to like certain kinds of music and there's not. There's nothing utterly predictable or rule bound behind that. So your question about pressing and racking and things like that, the people who do not buy commercial yeast and who are not managing their fermentation in that way, they might in general be on the side of doing fewer specifiable activities in the winery, but that's a, that's a really general thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, and vaguely general and not even not – even, it's not something you can count on. In other words, there are people who will buy commercial yeast who after they do the inoculation and the wine finishes fermenting, they might not do anything to the wine until they bottle it. On the other hand, there are a lot of people who use commercial yeast who will use SO2 and that's something we can come back to who might filter the wine before bottling. But there's no rule there. And the same thing is true to a certain degree um, with the people who don't buy yeast. Like You can say to some degree it's going to be more likely that somebody who engages in spontaneous fermentation will also not filter the wine, will not use SO2. And so sometimes people say that on the side of natural winemaking is something like non-intervention winemaking or
0: low-intervention winemaking. And I guess – that goes to yeah. The go ahead. Sorry, I guess that goes to the philosophy of how you make wine, which you, we we talked about a little bit earlier.
2: Yeah, I I I really go back and forth about this because and and now we're going from the technical side to a, a different way of thinking about about the two different ways to make wine. So maybe I should at this point say more about the way that I make wine. Yeah, that'd be great. I began as a real student. And you could say that all of us begin as students, but what I, what I mean is I never, I never studied or thought about making wine for the sake of turning it into a profession or a craft. I was an outsider. I was a philosophy professor the first time I started making wine, and I was studying grape growing out of an interest in plants and to some degree an interest in wine but not for the sake of ever growing grapes. And then I started making wine just because I was hanging around with winemakers, and I only did it to kind of get to know what winemaking was from the inside rather than the outside. And I never had the intention of devoting the rest of my life to it or trying to make it into a commercial endeavor. So I really began as a student, but not a student who was studying something for the sake of doing i was studying for the sake of studying in Mm. itself and to some degree for the sake of knowing and i was definitely influenced by a book that i read really early on in my studies called real wine that drew a distinction between a kind of old school winemaking and new school winemaking i don't think i don't think real wine used the term natural wine um and it was the second book and Uh, You'll have time to look up the name of the author. It's embarrassing to me. I don't remember his name because Uh he influenced me so much. But the first book was a book called The Wild Bunch. And he, um, he, he presented it not so much as a difference in philosophy, but he presented it as insiders versus outsiders, that insiders worked in a kind of industrial way. And The Wild Bunch, the winemakers that he wrote about, were working in a different way and they were outside of the mainstream but he also made the point that all of these people either had direct ties to a kind of old school of winemaking or were making a kind of postmodern return having abandoned modern winemaking and returning to an older way of making wine and I didn't come down on one side or the other I was working in Napa And I was working in a winery run by a man who was very, very interesting, who understood what you might call both sides. Mm. And he was running a winery that bridged both sides. In other words, we didn't inoculate at this winery, but we did use SO2. We did filter some of the wines before bottling, and we had a completely modern toolbox at our disposal, backed up by a high degree of university knowledge. And the man who was running the winery and teaching all of us to make wine, what he emphasized is that you can make very knowledgeable, precise, critical decisions that put you on one side or the other. but his his, I guess you could say his what he was inculcating in us was not a moral or philosophical position but a way of attacking a craft. His name is John Kongsgaard, and he was making his own wines at the winery. He was making them, you could say, in one way, and he was also directing the wine making of the winery itself, a winery called Luna Vineyards, and he was directing that winemaking in another way. And what he showed me and the other people who were working for him was the power of stepping back from the normal expectations, not rejecting them and for sure not rejecting them without having experience or knowledge of them. He wanted us to have experience and knowledge and then make a decision. And in particular, I would say the two or three things that um, were somewhat different from the way that everybody else was working around us, first, the uh, microbiology, uh, not inoculating, engaging in spontaneous fermentations, Second, the use of SO2, sulfur dioxide, in the winery. And I'll come back to that and be a little bit more precise. And third, the management of oxygen. And I'll start with that. That, in a way, is the easiest. Mm. All the wines that we made matured in barrel. Some of the wines fermented in tanks, some fermented in barrel. But all the wines matured in barrel. And the wine that matured most quickly was a Pinot Grigio blend that we made. And the idea was to bottle that roughly six to nine months after harvest when the wine was ready and a hundred percent of that wine matured in barrel and barrels breathe so the wine has some exposure to oxygen during that maturation you could say that part of what the maturation means is the interaction of the wine with oxygen and uh, the luna pinot grigio was topped roughly every three or four weeks And what that means is because the barrels breathe, they would evaporate to a small degree. And we managed the barrels so the evaporation was minimized and the amount of air ever sitting in like an empty space above the wine in the barrel, that was minimized by refilling Mm -hmm. the barrels every three or four weeks. And we did the same with the red wines that matured for a much longer time. One of the reds matured for nine to about 15 months and the other reds were closer to 24 months. Every barrel in the winery was topped every three or four weeks. And that meant that outside of harvest, there was a team of one or two people who spent every day topping barrels. John, in making his own wines, topped the barrels instead of every three or four weeks. He topped them at most three or four times a year. So as his wines matured, they were exposed to much more oxygen than the Luna wines. And then to go to SO2, the same time that we topped the Luna wines, we would add a little tiny bit of SO2 to keep the level of SO2 in the wines at a kind of constant level and not a very high level at all. If you wanted to measure it, you'd be talking about thousandth of a gram per liter. And in particular, I think that our target was maybe 30 micrograms per liter or 30 parts per million of SO2. That was, by industry standards in Napa, not high, but also not very low. John's wines were allowed to rest most of the time at zero. We might add a little SO2 to them at the beginning and allow that SO2 to kind of disappear into the wine and be absorbed in yeast cells and in the wood of the barrel, etc. And that was for us a very big difference to watch, watch the way the wines matured with this medium level of SO2 in the Luna wines in a very low level in John's wines. So my first move as a student, it wasn't a philosophical or political move. It was just an experimental move, just interested in seeing what happened. My first move as a student was to make a wine like John's from Chardonnay, fermented and aged in barrel and instead of topping it every three or four months and instead of adding a little bit of SO2, I thought what happens if you don't top it at all and what happens if you don't add any SO2 at all? And that was the beginning of my experiments that set me, you could say, on the path of natural winemaking.
0: That's interesting to to kind of tr- try that style and try to test test the waters and say Let's try this style. Let's try these little unique differences.
2: Yeah, and it and it's interesting because when I first started doing it, there was almost nobody else in Napa doing it. There wasn't really anybody else to talk to. John kind of made fun of what I was doing because he felt like he felt like the winemaking that he was doing was adventurous enough. And that if you did anything more adventurous than that, in some way you were being foolhardy. He for sure was not against my pursuit of knowledge, but he didn't, he didn't have a strong belief that it was gonna lead to good wines. And he's a very, very good taster, and I presented a bunch of wines to him that I had made maybe in the first couple of years of working under him, and some of them were made with SO2, and some without, and he could tell right away the wines that were made without SO2, and for him they were not successful, not failures, but just not successful, and he simply counseled that I should use more SO2 in those wines and I would make more beautiful, more expressive wines. And because I didn't have a kind of philosophical or political position about this, I really listened to him and I kept tinkering over the next several years of wine, my winemaking. And what I decided on was the following, is that there were, there were vineyards that I was working with that produced fruit that could go in different directions. And what I mean by that is, some vineyards, it seemed to me, could make the best possible wine in my hands if the wine went in one direction. Other vineyards could make the best possible wine if the wine went in a different direction. And only one vineyard that I worked with seemed capable of going in more than one direction, but it wasn't even the same section of the vineyard. It was like the upper section versus the lower. And a lot of these distinctions that I made started out in a way by accident. So in the vineyard where I eventually made two wines from the same vineyard, one from the upper section, one from the lower section, my intention was only ever to make one wine from the vineyard. I got fruit from the upper section first because it ripened more quickly than the fruit from the lower section. Brought it into the winery, made a wine that I was really happy with. And about two weeks later, the fruit from the lower section was ready. And when we harvested it, all I could think of is how different it was from the fruit from the upper section. And I wasn't happy. And so it's a Sauvignon Blanc vineyard. And the wine that I had in mind as a model for what I was doing were the Sauvignons of, um, of Friuli. And the wines that were made, not in a skin fermented style, but in a kind of clean and beautiful style, maybe not so different from Sancerre, but for sure nothing like uh, the Slovenian Mm. uh, wines from, from really nearby. And the wine that I made from the upper section of the vineyard was exactly what I wanted, really beautiful. And when the fruit came in from the lower section of the vineyard, the berries were like twice as big as the fruit from the upper section, they didn't seem to have the same intensity. And I was really disappointed. And I thought, okay, I know how to fix this. I'm gonna crush the fruit and I'm gonna throw some of the juice away. And the intention there is to concentrate what is left behind and to try to make a more intense wine by throwing some of the juice, which is to some degree, you could think of it as just like water and sugar and a little bit of acid. Anyway, throw that away. And then I realized after I had done this, fuck, I'm not making red wine. I'm trying to make a white wine. The juice is what I want to work with anyway. And then I thought, oh, my God, by making this mistake, I've now committed myself to doing a skin fermented white wine. So I took this Sauvignon Blanc from the bottom of the vineyard. I didn't throw any of the juice away. That would have been stupid and wasteful anyway. And I made, um, for the first time from this vineyard, a skin-fermented white wine. And now I'd say it's my most successful wine Mm. called The Prince in His Caves. And it began with a stupid mistake on my part. We make the wine from the top part of the vineyard using SO2. We protect it to a certain degree from oxygen during fermentation and during maturation. We prevent it from going through malolactic fermentation, which is a way of managing the microbiology in a pretty intense and intrusive way. And because the wine doesn't finish malolactic fermentation before bottling, we have to filter it to take out the malolactic bacteria so that they can't finish their biological work in bottle. And we make the wine from the lower section of the vineyard completely differently. No SO2, no protection from oxygen. Complete malolactic fermentation and no filtration before bottling.
0: It's interesting you said that was one of your most successful ones that you've made.
2: Yeah, and I think I think there are many reasons for that. I mean, I think this is now a marketing question. I think that um, when I started making these wines a long time ago, the first time I made that wine was 2005. I didn't call it the Prince yet because I, I really thought of it as a kind of accident or mm. maybe even as I said before, a mistake. But in 2006, I started making it on purpose. There were so few wines, it Mm. all like that, that there was a lot of hunger and demand for the wine. And now you can find skin fermented white wines made from all over the world. But when I released this wine in Northern California, it was for sure the only skin fermented white wine being made in Northern California at the time. And maybe the only skin fermented white wine being sold commercially in the United States that wasn't
0: made in Friuli or in Slovenia. Thank you for that. I, that was, that was thorough. And, um, I think it really helped me expand my knowledge on, on the differences. Um, well, I'm so glad and I, I'm sorry I went on at, at no. that <laughs> No. And, and it's, it's funny cause there's certain, there's certain terms or there's certain, uh, techniques that, I've, you know my knowledge base is so low on, and the other one is on on the lees. The, the yes, that whole concept.
2: Yeah. What can I tell you? Or, or do you want do you want like just a kind of basic background on the lees?
0: Yeah, just how just that style or or how it, kind of how what what its role is in kind of in the steps or in the process.
2: If you don't mind, I might be pretty
0: technical again. I would love that.
2: Okay, so. I would say when I first started making wine during the period of experimentation that I just described to you, I had no fucking idea what was going on at the Lees. And that's not even like I was confused. I wasn't even investigating. Mm. I treated the Lees as a kind of black box and it wasn't at the forefront of my thinking, but I did have a general inclination not to do things. It was working well for me not to top the barrels. It was working well for me not to add SO2. So another typical activity in the winery is to allow any solid material in the wine to settle just through the effect of gravity, to settle to the bottom of the vessel that the wine is in. And in the case of the wines that I was making at that time, all of those vessels were small wooden barrels. So you would let any solid material settle to the bottom of the barrel. And then the general inclination was to treat that as a form of dirt, as if it was sort of like your home and maybe the windows are open all the time, the doors open, people are going in and out. And over the course of even a single day, a fair amount of dirt is carried into the home Mm -hmm. and it just settles to the floor, settles to the other surfaces. And every night, Or every morning, you sweep up the floor, you clean up the dirt, and you throw it away somewhere. And I think that that's the way that a lot of people regarded the lees, that the lees were like dirt, and that it was your job as a winemaker, winemaker to keep the wine clean. And that didn't mean you had to get rid of the dirt every day, but it might mean that between two and four times a year, you would allow anything that was solid in the wine to settle to the bottom and then you would remove the wine by taking it away either by gravity or with a pump and leaving the solid stuff that had settled to the bottom leaving that in the bottom of the vessel and then flushing it out and then you might put the wine back in or maybe it stays into the new place where you put it when you took it out so let me tell you what this solid stuff is so you can have a better understanding of what's going on here when the wine is really young and it's just finished fermenting it has a vast amount of yeast in it picture i'm gonna just use the the sizes that i'm familiar with a 60 gallon or 220 liter wooden barrel which is the size that it's easiest to imagine the kind that we most have run into whether it's at wineries or wine shops or whatever that 60 gallon barrel, when the wine is finished fermenting, will have 5 to 15 gallons of sloppy lees at the bottom. And if you take all the clear wine away from the top, harvest those sloppy lees, and allow that to settle one more time, clear wine will rise to the top again. And heavier, denser leaves will settle to the bottom. And then you'll be left with, I would say, a minimum of 5 to 10 gallons of pretty dense material that was in your barrel before you did this whole operation. The operation is called racking. And what is left when you rack the wine away early in its life is a combination of material that came from the grapes, even if you're talking about a juice fermented wine where you're not trying to make skin fermented white wine, where you're not trying to make red wine, just trying to make a normal Chardonnay or something, there's still going to be tiny fragments of the skin in the wine that will settle to the bottom, but almost all the leaves will be made up of the incredible amount of yeast that did the fermentation. So you'll start with something like, I don't know what it is, say 100,000 yeast cells per ml at the beginning of fermentation. Those yeast cells will have come from the vineyard, from the barrels, from the hoses, from the pump, from the ceiling of the winery, from the walls. They'll have come from all over. And at the beginning of fermentation, they're massing like an army, and there's 100,000 of them per ml. But by the end of fermentation, when they're at their most active before they start going to sleep, um, instead of 100,000, might be a million or 10 million cells per ml. It's incredible. And at the end of fermentation, when the alcohol level is high and there's no more sugar for them to eat, they become dormant. In a healthy fermentation, they don't actually die. They just become dormant. And they settle to the bottom of the barrel. And that's where that five to 10 gallons comes from. Almost all of that will will be yeast. Some of it will be bacteria. The bacteria can be as high in number as the yeast or maybe even 10 times higher. There can be even more bacteria in the wine than there is yeast. But the bacteria are so much smaller than the yeast cells that as a kind of mass of gunk, they amount to almost nothing. So by volume or by weight, my guess is the bacteria represent less than 1% of that gunk. Skin fragments, depending on what kind of fermentation, might represent 5 to 10% of the gunk. And then all the rest of it is yeast. So that means that most of the lees that you, that you remove at the beginning of at, when the wine is young, most of the lees are dormant yeast cells. Okay, so now you've done the first racking. You've returned clean wine to some kind of vessel. You walk away, you come back four months later, and because your protocol demands that you rack four times a year, you do the activity again. And this time, instead of having 10 or 15 gallons of sloppy lees, you might have half a gallon of sloppy lees. And it's an interesting question well, where did this come from? And so part of it came from the fact that your first racking wasn't perfect. There was still a certain amount of solid material dispersed in the wine. But some of it is because your wine remains microbiologically active. And maybe a few more yeast cells have been floating around the wine. This time they're eating alcohol or they're eating something else rather than sugar. There could be bacteria that are eating things. And so the very small amount of lees that are generated over the successive rackings those represent the continued biological life of the wine. And to a very small degree, they represent things that didn't settle out in the previous rackings. And so the successive rackings, instead of yielding gallons and gallons of lees, yield only ounces of lees. And one of the things that I learned um, maybe three or four years into winemaking is there a lot of winemakers who are racking later in the maturation of the wine, not so much because they want to get rid of the lees, but because the very activity of racking oxygenates the wine. And Mm -hmm. so it's really interesting. In a Napa winery, you might have constant attention paid every day of the year to keeping the wines from being involved with oxygen, namely by topping the barrels, by making sure that the bungs are secure. And then three or four times a year, You oxygenate the wine in a way kind of violently and on purpose. And I'm not saying that this is uh, that there's anything wrong with this at all. I think that people who do it know exactly what they're doing. For me, what's interesting about it is it shows a preference for directed and controlled activities over something like spontaneous and gradual activities. Mm long answer about the scheduling and what uh, the nature of the gunk is and now let me say what i think comes from making one decision rather than another so i started making the decision not because i knew what what differences would occur but just because i had a kind of preference for not doing things and you could say for not taking the wine apart and i also had a method they kind of demanded not doing anything unless I sensed a problem. And I rarely sensed a problem from the lees. The people who were always careful to remove the wine from the lees early in the wine's life after fermentation, they would feel that you might diminish the freshness of the wine or the fruitiness of the wine by leaving it in contact with those 10 to 15 gallons of dormant yeast cells. At a certain point, the yeast cells die and then they decompose. And I don't think I really ever got negative flavors or aromatics from that. But for sure, there are people who, when they sense the yeast cells dying, decomposing, breaking down... They think that in a certain sense it's polluting the wine, that the wine is really about the fruit Mm. and for sure not about the yeast. And when the yeast yeast cells start breaking down and becoming part of the wine, for them, as I said, that's a kind of pollution. So the racking for them at that point is very important. For me, not so much. And there's a chemical side, not just a kind of flavor or aroma side to leaving the wine in contact with the leaves. I learned about this only maybe five years after I had been doing it. And that is that that mass of yeast cells at the bottom of the barrel, it has a really high capacity for absorbing oxygen. So what I didn't realize is that by not topping, I was introducing a lot of oxygen into the wine, but by not racking, I was leaving a really powerful oxygen sink at the bottom of the wine. And what that meant is that I was both oxygenating the wine and in some way pulling the oxygen out of the wine at the same time. And honestly, I don't know like what the chemical pathway is. I don't know really whether they're like oxygen molecules are kind of swimming through the wine and somehow affected and then get pulled out by the yeast. I don't know what the mechanism or the history is. But I know that my wines have a very oxidative taste, aroma, feeling about them, but you can almost never say that they're oxidized. And so my understanding of how that's possible is that the lees are protecting the wine and allowing the oxygen to somehow interact with the wine, but without spoiling the wine. Does that help? Yeah, that does. There are other winemakers, and it's much, I think it's more common to make this wine now than it was 10 or 15 years ago. I think um, John taught us to make this wine based on winemaking that he had learned about at the highest level in Burgundy, namely from Costa and Nyon, and this way of keeping the wine on the lees, if it was uncommon in Napa in 1999, I would say it is probably the rule of high-level artisanal wine making all around the world now. Maybe not used to a certain degree in industrial and commercial winemaking, but I think it's more common in industrial and commercial winemaking also.
1: Mm.
0: Just, to, just to change topics slightly, do you find as, as someone who, as a wine drinker, do you find that you still drink all sorts of types of wine? Or are you more specific now than you used to be?
2: Oh, that's a really good question. I don't think I'm more specific. I I think 20 years ago when I was learning more about wine, the landscape was more open to me and less defined. Like, In other words, I didn't know where I was going and I was happy to wander. Now I wander a little bit less. And so I probably... Drink fewer bottles that are made in large wineries in conventional ways than I did 20 years ago. And it's not so much that I'm against that kind of winemaking. In some ways, I support it strongly because very often it leads to sound, inexpensive wines that might not be super interesting but that are satisfying and I'm happy that they exist. But I explore them much less than I used to. And I think you could say now that my exploration is really concentrated on hopping from one relatively small producer to another. And just because of the trends in the market now, I, I bet most of the new wines that I try are made more within the realm of natural winemaking than the realm of conventional winemaking. But not only do I not have a preference, I think I have a small preference for wines made by small producers, but that are made in what I think of as a more classical way, rather in the super—I don't know what—no holds barred way that's common in natural winemaking. So I don't think I don't think
0: I explore any less. I just explore in a somewhat different way. Oh, that's interesting. the The only other question, I, by the way, I appreciate the time. I appreciate. Yeah, my uh, pleasure. The other question I had was: Is there? I, I call it the. I call it. This is my my fun question. I call it the desert yeah. island grape variety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there something for you that I know? Christina is all about the Mondu's um, <laughs> I, I had to edit her down on that one. Let me tell you, <laughs> but uh, she'll laugh. She'll laugh when she listens to this. But is there is there one grape for you that stands out more than another?
2: no there's not one fucking grape (laughs) nor is there one fucking molecule i teased her about this too when i told her that i had agreed to talk to you (laughs) i said that i had given you one condition and that is that we're not going to talk about mondes or i don't even know how to pronounce it rotundone rotundone yeah no there's nothing like a desert island grape for me, to some degree, the analogy that I made before between grapes and breeds of dogs, it doesn't it doesn't really work because I really believe that breeds of dogs are, are really different from each other. They really have not just characteristics and appearance, but the way they behave and, and all kinds of things and that those differences are significant. I don't think that the differences between grape varieties is as marked as the differences between uh dog breeds. Yeah. And in particular, the two grapes, that, the two white grapes that I think I do the most work with, Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc, I think that all the time they make wines that you can't distinguish from each other. They make wines you can't distinguish from each other in the Loire, um, in in, uh, in and around Chablis. I'm thinking of Sambry and Chablis. Um, we make wines at a winery that I work with, work at in Brooklyn from the North Fork of Long Island. And even when the wines are young, not just when they're mature, all the time, you can't tell the difference between Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc. The wines I make in California, it's the same thing. And so there's a really clear reason for this. We're not just talking about the way that the vines and their fruit looks in the vineyard. We're now talking about grape varieties in the hands of winemakers and that have been passed through some really high an interesting degree of microbiological activity. So now we're talking about something really different from a dog because when we think about the differences between dog ver- dog breeds, we're thinking about those dogs running around. We're not thinking so much about the dogs under the hand of a master and under the influence of microbiology. I feel like the hand of the winemaker is so strong And the effect of the microbiology is so important to say nothing of other things you've asked about the role of oxygen, the role of leaves contact. I feel like in the end, the grape variety is one of the least important things in the final wine. For sure, much more important, the geology and other characteristics of the soil of the vineyard in which the grapes were grown and what the surrounding climate is year after year what the weather conditions were week after week, and sometimes day by day or hour by hour. Those things can influence the final wine, I would say, to a higher degree than the grape variety. Nonetheless, I I pay attention to grape varieties, but I don't think about them in a kind of fetishistic way.
0: And I I think I I agree in the sense that I think now – I think more about like as a as a drinker. I think more of my taste profile and what I what I like about wines, like the the Pinot style where it's got the the forest floor and you've got um, undergrowth and and you know flowers and all this the rusticness you know. And then I think about other grape varieties that are similar. Those that's almost now more a, a taste profile that I have in my head about what I what I like yeah. r- rather than a specific grape, you know. Um, Sangiovese or Norello Mescalese or any of these other grapes yeah. that are similar, that rustic kind of uh, flavoring. Now that's to me what I think about when I think about that question. But it's, I, I, I wanted to throw that out there because I knew I knew what you are going to say. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you, Abe. I appreciate this. Yeah, moment. my pleasure. I think we'll, I think we'll leave it there. Great. Good to talk to you, Ian. Yeah, that was fun. My pleasure. I think we're going to leave it there for now. Thanks for listening. For more wine conversation and podcast updates, you can follow us on Instagram at Ian's Wine Truths. Check out our website for great photos of our guests, Friends of the Vine. Take care. Have a glass for me.